this is the idea to start a podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the idea to start up podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. I got a fun email the other day. It was from someone working on a startup who said they'd made a commitment to work on that idea 30 minutes per day on Monday to Friday and an hour and a half per day on Saturday and Sunday for the next 60 days. They'd blocked off all the slots on their calendar, fitting it in around work, a family trip, and a bachelorette. Separately, I love this approach for just about anything. I think 60 days is an underratedly really long time, and I also think that while weekends are supposed to be free, committing to an hour and a half on every Saturday and Sunday is unrealistic. So if you've got an idea or you want to learn piano or speak Spanish or start doing yoga or make cooking a habit, I'd recommend 30 minutes a day every day for 30 days. This gives your brain some time to get context. You'll have 15 hours of work and you'll have some momentum. Some days you won't want to do it, and you'll get to flex your resiliency muscle, which always feels good. There's nothing better than a 30-minute run at 10 p.m. to not break the streak. Anyway, this person specifically reached out because they were two weeks in and they didn't know if what they were doing was working. On the one hand, I'm always a little shocked at this question because we literally run a business that solves this problem. But on the other hand, maybe it isn't a fit, and it's always a good thought exercise. Her email asked what she should focus on. She said she was deciding between trying to find team members or starting to build out a deck for fundraising. Being a bit annoying, I said neither of those make any sense, but there is something you can do that most people skip that'll give you a much better chance at succeeding. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Right after, we talk about the movie Jaws. The shark from Jaws had a lot of problems right from the start. And if you've never seen Jaws, pause the podcast and go watch it. We'll be here when you're done. Jaws was just the second major movie Steven Spielberg ever directed, and he wanted to make a splash. Sorry. The movie centers around a giant great white shark wreaking havoc on a northeastern beach town. And so to really have the movie work, the shark would need to be realistic and terrifying. And Spielberg wanted it in a bunch of scenes, so he spent a big chunk of the movie's budget and commissioned a 25-foot mechanical great white shark. The first problem with the mechanical shark was that it was designed, built, and tested in fresh water. But the movie was being filmed in the Atlantic Ocean, so shortly after plopping it into the water, the salt caused the machinery to malfunction. Next, the shark didn't really float right. A test of the shark in front of tourists was laughable. Spielberg later said, quote, The shark came up tail first. It was like a 25-foot moon. He called it a disaster. Also, close-ups of the shark looked a little silly. It kind of looked like a giant rubber puppet. There was a fear that it'd pull the audience out of the story. And the mechanical shark didn't really move like a shark in the water, more like a big, awkwardly floating subway car. So Spielberg pivoted a bit and tried to supplement the mechanical shark footage with some real shark footage. But since sharks aren't actually 25 feet long, they had to use four foot tall stunt doubles for the actors to make the real sharks look bigger by comparison. The hope was to make a 15 foot shark actually look like a 30 foot shark. They spent a week trying to film a shark attacking a cage with the double in there, but it never happened. As the story goes, this is where Spielberg had an insight that makes the movie as watchable today as it was in 1975. The scariest thing about a shark isn't seeing a shark. 
it's not seeing a shark. The shark looking silly and the footage of real sharks being hard to capture were a blessing. Writing the movie to avoid showing the shark built real terror because to humans, the unknown is always way scarier than the known. Whatever we all imagine the shark looked like would always be scarier than whatever their team could build. And that is what we're going to talk about today. The question we kicked off the podcast with was what to focus on, with the suggestions both being totally safe options. Two things that I'd respectfully call busy work. But the real answer is to focus on the stuff we all ignore because it seems unknown and scary, the shark in the water. Great entrepreneurs dive in to see what they're dealing with, and they usually find out it's just a big, goofy, mechanical shark, while most entrepreneurs just work on fluff and never build anything meaningful. There are natural blind spots for entrepreneurs, and we'll talk today about how to navigate this. And if you're scared of sharks, while reading about Jaws, I stumbled on an interesting fact you are 10 times more likely to get bit by a New Yorker than a shark. And if you think the whole Jaws intro was just to squeeze that little tidbit into the pod, you can't prove it. Back to navigating the blind spots for entrepreneurs after some smooth jazz. I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox, a monthly membership program that provides structure, strategy, and network for entrepreneurs testing and building startup ideas on the side. We help you flesh out and test your idea so you can understand its potential and start working purposefully towards that potential. We put everything we learned from seven years helping over 350 idea stage entrepreneurs build businesses that raised over 100 million bucks and are now worth nearly a billion into this program. It's a clear step-by-step path with target metrics that'll take you from idea to product. It's the thing I would have killed for when I was working on my idea without direction or a team, which is exactly why we built it. We're going to launch 250 businesses this year. One of those might as well be yours. Head to gettacklebox.com slash no whisper ideas to get the podcast listeners deal. And if you do, I'll see you on Wednesday at our one-on-one strategy session. Back to it. Growth is a buzzword for entrepreneurs. Everyone is looking for growth, how to measure it, how to get it whether it's slowed or is speeding up, or if you've got enough to raise funding, or if you don't have enough of it, and you should probably just quit. But I'm not sure people ever think about what growth really is, the first principles of growth. The way I think about growth is overwhelming value. Value so unique and helpful that the customer is bowled over by it, completely floored to the point that they have to tell someone. I get bowled over like this a lot. I love recommending things to people that I think will make their life better. Every speech at my wedding talked about this, how people get weekly texts from me saying I found the greatest pizza on the planet or the best sandal or that I'd thought up the greatest name for a French dip restaurant ever. That last one is true and the name is Aju Sirius and I need someone to open it. But most people aren't like this. A good exercise is to think about the last product you recommended to someone. Think about why you recommended it, about what you said. Then realize that every bit of growth you get early on will come through a similar recommendation and realize how rare it is. But anyway, if we start with that premise that every entrepreneur wants growth and that growth only comes from overwhelming someone with value enough that they are compelled to share, we need to know how to do that. If you're thinking about the first things you should do when starting to work seriously on an idea, the things you should allocate those 30-minute daily segments to, Everything that isn't figuring out how to bowl people over is window dressing. Because without that, you won't grow, which is the thing that matters. At their core, startups are just a promise your customer desperately wants you to keep. 
a promise that matters enough that if you keep it, they're going to tell someone about it. They won't be able to help themselves. So how do you plan for that? A story might help. I got pitched an idea for a golf startup a while back. The premise was virtual coaching. The customer would set up their iPhone at the driving range, take a bunch of swings with different clubs, and the pro would be in their ear the whole time telling them what they were doing wrong and how to correct it. The big part of the pitch was the ability to scale. This guy had a partner who was doing serious heavy lifting on the tech side. They'd be able to analyze each player's swing through the app, recognizing what parts of that swing needed to be fixed or optimized in real time. Eventually, the coach wouldn't be necessary. It'd be a fully functional, real-time swing corrector. The founder was a terrific golfer. He played in college. He had numbers on how many lessons were given each year and how big this thing could get. The TAM, he told me excitedly, was in the billions of dollars. He'd line up funding and get the tech out ASAP. He talked a lot about growth. My first question was, who would he bowl over with this? Who would be so blown away that they just have to share? He looked at me a bit confused and answered, well, anyone that wants to get better at golf. That's the type of answer someone terrified of the shark in the water says. They don't know what they're dealing with and they don't want to. Sure, I replied, but who would be first in line to get their virtual lesson with the pro and be so excited about it that they'd immediately text their group of friends and say they had to try it too? A pause. Well, it wouldn't happen like that, he said, because they'd probably have a lot to work on, so it would more likely be that a few months down the road, they'd get better, and then they'd tell people. Well, how does this customer get better now, I asked. Do they have a golf pro and they'll switch to you, or supplement the pro with you, or they don't do anything now and this will be their first attempt at a lesson? Well, I'm not sure, he said. The market is enormous, tons of room for growth. There was that word again. When's the last time you went to the range to watch people practice? I asked. A blank stare. If I were you, I'd go to your local driving range for a couple hours a day, every day for the next two weeks, maybe the next month. See how people practice. Then ask them some questions. See what they're doing to get better. See what their goals are. See what the bottleneck is. Solve their problem. Don't cram your idea that can scale into their workflow. Learn their workflow and figure out what would fit nicely with it. I never thought he'd do it. I give lots of people this sort of advice, and very few people do. It's called ethnographic research. Basically, you just watch your customer in real time deal with the problem you're solving. It's unbearably helpful and can be unbearably uncomfortable. Most people would rather take a wild swing on a startup idea, essentially a super expensive and time-consuming lotto ticket, than do this type of research and build something people actually want. A few weeks later, though, he emailed. He'd gone to the range for three hours a day for the last two weeks, and a few things happened. First, he began to recognize the different types of golfers. He saw a handful of people every day. A few people he saw three to five times. A bunch came every Monday or Tuesday or Sunday. He saw people take lessons, then go to the range on their own to work on what they'd learned a few times before the next lesson. He saw people videotape themselves, and he saw people FaceTime friends while they swung, and he saw people yell at themselves a lot. He watched one woman hit only driver for two hours straight, and he watched a guy hit one seven iron and then leave. He saw people with every contraption under the sun to try and help them swing better, including a pendulum hanging from the brim of one guy's hat. He watched them all, and he spoke to most of them. His email was excited. He asked if we could do a quick call. I found a real problem that is so easy to fix, it's crazy, he said. Literally every golfer who shoots about 90 is frustrated because they slice a ton off the tee. 
And they've tried everything to solve it with 99% of them thinking it's swing path, but it's not. It's just this one thing that can be fixed with a drill done properly for a week or two. Basically, they push their hips forward on the downswing, which straightens up their upper body, pushes their hands forward, and increases the angle of the club. There's no way to not push the ball right, and you lose all your power. The swing plane stuff will never help, even if you correct that. I was completely lost, and there's a good chance I butchered his advice just now, but the bigger point was that he had a drill that helped one specific customer immensely, and that he'd shown people at the range, and that it worked. In general, he'd just talk to them a lot. He'd ask them how they got better, and one theme emerged. This golfer that would shoot around 90 would watch videos on YouTube, then go to the range to try to replicate them. They'd do this almost every time they went to the range, which was a few times a week. Some had instructors, but only sporadically, and the instructor would always start from scratch, which was frustrating. Really, this customer just wanted the slice gone. He watched the YouTube videos that these people were watching, and they were great, but it was impossible to say which video was right for which golfer without watching them swing. So he did. He'd watch people swing, suggest a few YouTube videos, then suggest a few drills, all of which had already been made into high quality YouTube videos themselves, not by him, by other people. A whole media library of golf tips already exist. He told them to videotape themselves practicing these golf tips and he'd give comments. The workflow started. He'd watch them in person, send an email with a few YouTube links, They'd send back an email with a recording of them practicing, and he'd then send a five-minute FaceTime recording with some more links and tips. He charged them 50 bucks per email, which they happily paid over Venmo. And he started to grow. He fixed people's slice, and they told their friends. In two months, he had more customers than he could dream of handling, and he started to figure out how to build a product that would support the type of growth that he'd earned. No more building an app for no one. Lots of interacting with customers. My tip for you this weekend is ethnographic research. It is ignored to a criminal level. How can you set up a scenario where you physically watch your customer solve the problem you're solving for them now, over their shoulder, unobtrusively? How can you learn how they feel while it happens? But Brian, that is freaking hard. I hear you, and yes it is, which is a good thing. Because if you figure out how to do it, you'll have an unbeatable leg up on anyone else building for that customer. You're going to have to bowl them over to grow, which means you need to know exactly what they do now, how they feel about it, what frustrates them, and what promise would be so compelling that they'd kill for you to keep it. You've got to become an expert in how a small group of people feel. For our golf friend, that promise was, you shoot 90, but you can't kick your slice. You go to the range a few times a week, you watch YouTube videos, but you can't seem to put into practice what you just watched. There are specific drills that work for specific people, and I'll match you up with the right drill so that we fix your slice and you start winning your Sunday foursome. For you, what is the promise? No promise, no growth. No growth, no startup. And now, let's talk about a fishing store. The reason people don't do ethnographic research is the same reason I acted ridiculous in a bait and tackle shop the other day. I love fly fishing. I've been doing it with my dad for over 20 years, and I'm good at it. I am not good at any other type of fishing, but I'd prefer that people don't know that. So when I walked into a bait and tackle shop for a deep sea fishing trip I was taking with my in-laws, I didn't know what I was looking for. But when the guy asked if I needed help, I pretended like I didn't. Humans are weird like this. At some point, we decide that we're supposed to know everything, which means that for lots of people, after we're like 22, we never learn anything new. 
Last week, I talked about how the most successful entrepreneurs we've worked with are the most empathetic, and they are. But they're also the most annoying in a good way. When I think of our most successful entrepreneurs, there's no way they would have pretended that they didn't need help in a fishing store for some weird pride reason. They would have peppered the expert with questions. They would have opened by saying, I know absolutely nothing about this, but I'd love to. Then they'd ask about what's currently working and what's worked historically and what's likely to work for newbies. They'd ask where to fish and when and for how long. This is fixed mindset versus growth mindset, and you simply can't build anything interesting with the first perspective. The best gift you can give yourself is to allow yourself to have the growth mindset, to acknowledge that you don't know much now, but you can learn absolutely anything, and that what you need to learn for startup purposes is people, what they do and how they feel and what they want. Then set up the scenarios to learn those things fast. If this seems like you're squashing an ant with an anvil, remember the foundation of growth, something so great people need to share it. Now look back at your list of things you've shared. I guarantee they were all emotional. They either made you feel a certain way to share or would make the person you shared with feel a certain way. This isn't surface level stuff and you need to put in unique hours to find it. If you're going to work on your startup for 30 minutes a day, I would do two things continuously over and over. First, figure out how to watch your customers solve the problem you'll solve for them. And second, give them a promise that you think will bowl them over and see if it does. If it does, lean into that more. Try to execute on it. See if you can deliver on it. Grow. If it doesn't, go back to step one. Watch people solve a hard problem in real time. Talk to them as they do. Assume you know nothing. Be proud that you know nothing. This is an opportunity. Then learn and try to make a promise that matters. And if none of that works, just start a French dip restaurant called Au Jus Serious. Please do it. I need that t-shirt. This was the idea to start a podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you'd rather not do all the stuff we just talked about alone, do it with me and the rest of the team. Apply at gettacklebox.com slash no whisper ideas. Have a great week.